So I've titled it, Discerning God's Glory, which on the surface level can seem like a pretty simple idea. It seems like a pretty easy concept of being able to tell the difference between what is God's glory and what is not, and what we'll see is basically man's glory. But we also find out, as, as we'll go through this, that there's some more subtleties to it sometimes. That sometimes, it might seem like a clear distinction, but sometimes in the, in the mess of life, especially if you're thinking of the mess of motherhood that it can be sometimes, it can be a lot more subtle when you're dealing with heart things and what is it that is truly seeking God's glory. Let me give you an example from my own life. So, from very early age in my life, to me, something that was really important were my grades. Academics was an extremely important thing in my life growing up, and it led me to become ultimately devastated when I got to my undergraduate degree and got my first B in college, and I was just torn up about it, and still it's the professor's fault and not my own, right? That's something must have gone wrong, but... So when I came to seminary to approach my master's degree, obviously I have this mindset of what would be truly glorifying to God is for me to get all A's and keep my GPA where I think it should be. And at my orientation, before I ever started a class, our provost, who was there at that time, gave a message to all the incoming students, and he said something that I'll never to this day forget, and hopefully for the rest of my life, academics or not, I will never forget. He stood there in front of us, and he said, for some of you, it will be a sin for you if you don't get an A, because it means that you've been lazy with your studies and haven't been pursuing them faithfully. And then he turned and he said, for others of you, it will be sin if you get an A. Meaning that in the midst of pursuing so much your academics and studies, you failed as a husband and father to your family at home. Or you failed to seek the Lord in your own personal life because you've committed so much of your time to your academics. And never to this day will I forget that, that I could honestly be living in sin if my academics become so important that I fail in my long-term permanent calling as a husband, as a follower of Jesus, as a father, as a pastor now, any of that. And so we can see there how there's some more subtlety to what it really means to discern God's glory. That really seeking God's glory doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to get all A's all the time. But instead, there's a better glory to be had. In reality, the academics is really a man's glory that I was seeking after rather than God's glory. So we need to discern between these two things. And that's where we see Jesus kind of come into play today as we get into chapter 7. If you remember, we finished chapter 6 in this whole discourse about Jesus being the bread of life, right? Jesus talking to these people in 
Galilee. We remember that he, it was about the time of Passover, right? Because we talked about how it linked to Moses about Jesus giving the bread. And then Jesus launches in the day after feeding the 5,000, talking to this crowd. And that was most of chapter 6. Now we get to chapter 7 and we find out it's now about the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, is fast-forwarding six months, right? So from the end of chapter 6 to the start of chapter 7, we essentially have six months have gone by. We find out that Jesus has traveled through Galilee during this time doing some ministry, but now he's potentially going back to Jerusalem. And if you remember, right... Going back into Judea and Jerusalem, that Jesus hasn't had super good results so far there. He healed the paralytic who had been paralyzed for 38 years, but then there was this whole uproar that he healed a man on the Sabbath, and we're going to see that come back into play even today. And we find out today that because of that, and even we saw it back then, Jesus was already being sought to be killed by the Jewish leaders. So that's where we're at. Six months later, fast-forwarded from chapter 6, jumping into chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
So we're going to take this into three parts because what we ultimately see here is Jesus talked to three different groups of people. We see Jesus talk to his brothers before the feast. We see Jesus talk to, it says, the Jews at the feast, and then it says the crowd at the feast, right? So the Jews and the crowd, are, well, the crowd are Jews. So what are we talking about here? Specifically, John's using the term Jews to talk about the Jewish leaders here, kind of the authority figures of the religious group of the Jews. So we have these three different groups, and that's kind of how we're going to break down the three parts that we're going to talk about this morning. John begins here by telling us, with Jesus' conversation with his brothers, that Jesus rejects man's glory. At the beginning, John gives us the setting here. He sets the stage. He tells us that Jesus was traveling throughout Galilee, right? He wasn't headed to Judea because if he was going there, they were going to kill him. And then he gives us this note, right? In verse 2, he tells us that the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, this is a significant time going on in the Jewish people's lives because there were essentially three feasts that happened where all people, all the Jews from all different parts of lands would gather together. And one of them was this feast. That becomes important when we see Jesus come to his brother's suggestion. Right? So now we get to Jesus' brothers, and they have a suggestion for Jesus. Their suggestion is, the feast is happening, go get your glory. Right? Look at verse 3. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now on the surface level, this doesn't necessarily sound too bad, does it? I mean, consider what just happened at the end of chapter 6, which we know was six months ago. But at the end of chapter 6, thousands walk away from Jesus. And he's left with the twelve. Thousands have walked away and he's left with the twelve. So his brothers are saying, what a perfect time to go gain a new following. What a perfect time to go do your works. When all the people are gathered for this feast, go do your works and see people come and follow you again. Gain back the group that you once had. There's massive potential at their feast. And they're not necessarily wrong about the potential that exists, but what comes to them being wrong? There's two things. The first one is, what do they tell Jesus to do? That the disciples may see the works that you are doing. Notice the emphasis on works, specifically Jesus' signs or his miracles that Jesus is doing. We've already seen throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches, right? The whole point is not about the miracles. Your faith is not supposed to be in seeing the miracles. He tells them that this is not what they're supposed to be trusting in. They're supposed to be trusting in the person rather than the works themselves. The works themselves are just a display of who the person is. But everybody just wants to see the miracles done. Yet this is exactly what his brothers are telling him to do. Go do the miracles and gain back a following. So first of all, they're, they're focusing on the wrong thing. But second of all, they have no consideration in their mind of what would happen to Jesus if he did this. Think about it. If what we already have found out just from the beginning verses is true, what would happen if Jesus went and did all these works? At this feast, he would have died. 
The Jews were already seeking to kill him. They would have taken him, arrested him, and crucified him probably much earlier than what they did if Jesus would have followed his brother's advice. So they're so focused, though. These brothers of his are so focused on a specific glory, man's glory, that this is all they're thinking of. They tell Jesus, go get the glory. Go show your disciples. Go gain back a following. And we see this kind of come more in view in verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now notice what they say, right? No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They assume this is Jesus' desire. They assume Jesus does want to be known openly, that Jesus does want this huge following to come to him, that this is God's will. What they have essentially done is they have equated God's glory with man's glory. If you have a big following, that must show God has had favor upon you. So they're thinking that in a sense that Jesus would get more of the Father's glory, more of God's glory, if he would gain more men to follow him, if he would go do all these miracles. They assume this is what Jesus wants, but Jesus clearly later tells them, this is not what I'm pursuing after. It's not my time yet. But they can't see it. They can't see that God's glory and man's glory are two distinctly different things. And we see the reason for it as it, we go on to verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They're not believers. So Jesus' own brothers are giving him advice on what to do in his ministry, on what it means to get God's glory, to, to go for God's glory, but it's not really God's glory, it's only man's glory. And the reason they're only seeking man's glory is because they don't believe in God's glory in a, in a sense yet, because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't understand who he is yet. Their advice is entirely wrapped up in their own unbelief. So then Jesus responds to them, and he essentially tells them, I reject man's glory. Kind of seems like an odd response at first. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now we can make sense in one sense of what Jesus is saying here because he's telling them, well, my time has not yet come to go to the feast, but it kind of seems insulting to say, but you can go ahead and go to the feast, right? So there's a sense here of of your time isn't necessarily as important as my time is, so you can go ahead and go, but I can't go yet. But there's a more fundamental thing going on here, and that's that Jesus as the Son is making every decision in his life based upon the Father. His decisions are based on God's timeline. His brother's decisions are not. So in a sense, there is some truth. If you guys aren't living according to the Father's timeline, worrying about God's glory, then you can go ahead and go to the feast whenever you want. But Jesus says, my time is committed to God's timeline, the Father's timeline, so I'm not able to go yet. He says, I, my time has not yet come. 
Not saying that God doesn't use the timing that his brothers are living in by any means, but he's just saying if their mindset isn't about God's timeline, then in a sense, they are free to attend the feast whenever they want. And in a sense, Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to go in the way you want me to go. And we see this distinction continue in verse 7, continues to separate here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So now, we not only have a difference between Jesus and his brother's timelines, where they can go to the feast, but he can't, but now we have a difference in how the world responds to each of these different groups, or to Jesus' brothers versus Jesus himself. Right? The world cannot hate you. He tells his brothers, the world can't hate you. Now, to his brothers, this probably sounds like good news, doesn't it? His brothers want the world to love him and themselves. His brothers want the world to love Jesus. That's why they're telling him to go to the feast. But Jesus, if you know anything about Jesus and watch his ministry, what? Hate is inevitable. The darkness hates the light. We already saw that all the way back in chapter 1, and as the ongoing theme in the Gospel of John, the world hates Jesus, in a sense. So the brothers cannot be hated because the brothers are seeking man's glory, and that's exactly what the world loves. The world loves man's glory, so if the brothers are pursuing man's glory, the world would never hate them. But Jesus is hated by the world, and then he gives us the reason. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. So Jesus, because he speaks clearly about the world's evil, the world thus hates him for it. And then he reaffirms in the last two verses of this conversation He reaffirms what he already said. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus isn't lying here, right? People might be tempted to say that Jesus is lying to his brothers because he does end up going to the feast. What he's saying is it's not my time to come. I'm not leaving right now with you, one, and I'm not going in the way you want me to go, two. Right? There's two different things. But both of them are saying the same thing. I'm not going with you. I'm not going at the beginning of the feast, because that's when everybody's going to see me walking in. And two, I'm not going to go with this big public announcement like you want me to, because that's not what I'm here for at this point. We do see Jesus does eventually get a public entrance, right? The triumphal entry as he goes into Jerusalem the week he gets crucified. But in a sense here, what we see Jesus in his conversation with his brothers is Jesus just saying, I reject man's glory. I reject your idea of what it means to have glory, to get recognition. You know, one of, one of the lines, I don't know why, but one of the lines that was repeated from a movie in my high school years, going into college years, was there's a movie that came out called 300. I don't know if any of you have seen it or heard of it, but it, it's kind of it's supposed to be like a historical sort of thing about the Spartans as they face off against Persia, right? And what happens is there's like 
tens of thousands of Persians, and there's a group of 300 Spartans that take them on and not necessarily kill all of them, but kill so many of them that it inspires the rest of Sparta to take them on. But as those 300 are standing there kind of on their last leg, they know that they can't continue on like this forever, and they're starting to get surrounded, and their time has kind of come where they know they're going to die. Their leader, King Leonidas, right, says a phrase. He yells at them. He says, Spartans, and then he says this. He says, prepare for glory. There's this concept in his mind that from that point on, their story will be told forever. That their heroics of their effort of 300 killing 10,000 other Persians will forever be told. That's exactly the type of glory Jesus is rejecting. Jesus is saying this whole status of having some sort of legend about yourself, this sort of man glory, man's approval, man's whatever you want to call it, is not what I'm pursuing. That's not what I'm going after. And so we also, like Jesus, are called to reject the pursuit of man's glory in this world. I want to break it down real quick into four things we see Jesus do in his conversation with his brothers. Number one, Jesus says, I don't simply desire what works. Jesus is not a pragmatist. He doesn't say, if it works, I'll do it. Because what his brothers told him to do probably could have gained him a following. Though it may have ended up in his death, it it could have started a huge revolution that this Jesus doing all these miracles and all these people all of a sudden believe in him, now all of a sudden he gets killed and this massive revolution could have happened. But Jesus says, I'm not going to simply do and desire what works. Jesus also says, I know the difference. I'm able to discern between what is evil and what is good. And then, even more, further than that, he says, I am clear, I speak clearly on what is evil and what is good. He actually testifies to the world about their own evil. And then last, Jesus expects hostility in response to being clear on what is evil and good. So let me apply this real quick to our mothers directly for a moment. Mothers, your success in parenting is not simply based on the latest parenting tip on what works in children's lives. Your identification of what is good, what is good motherhood, good parenting, isn't what the world tells you is good. It's not about how much money you make in order to give it to your kids. It's not about what college your kid ends up going to. It's not about how how many hours you spend in the PTA, or it's not about whether your kid's friends think you're the cool parent. But instead... You discern what is evil and what is good, and it's determined by what God says. And you reject outrightly what is determined to be evil. And not only do you reject evil or the pursuit of your own glory, but you teach your kids to do the same. 
You make sure your children know that glory is not to be found in their academics, in their sports, in the approval of other people. And you can only do this not just by knowing the difference between evil and good, but by articulating the difference, by being clear on it, by speaking it to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to other parents, and you know what you can expect when you articulate what is evil and what is good to a world that doesn't believe hostility. You can expect pushback. I guarantee you, there is a whole lot of people that don't believe in Jesus that would have heard the words of my provost on that day and completely disagreed with him. They would have said, no, your right thing to worry about right now is getting an A, and that's all you need to worry about. But it's not just grades. There's more than that in our world that we tend to try to find glory in. Because we have to realize, if your definition of success matches the same definition of success that the world has, there's going to be no pushback. So if you and your unbelieving neighbors or unbelieving parents around you can live the same way and not have any disagreement on what is good and right and godly, then there might be a problem. Because the world hates when you call their glory evil. At least according to Jesus. If you disagree with that, take it up with him. Christians, it's the same thing. We're not going to operate our church based on simply what works. We're not going to advertise and try to have some sort of huge, massive event that's going to entertain the unbelieving world, but never offer them the truth of the gospel, which they don't want to hear. Right? We're going to outrightly reject any attempt to simply have the world's approval around us. That's not what we're going to do. And you know what we can expect when we make known what is evil and what is good. Hate. Hostility, pushback. But you know what makes us able to endure hate? The fact that we know there's a better glory to pursue. Which brings us to Jesus' conversation with the Jewish leaders, seeking God's glory. Again, John sets the stage for us before Jesus actually begins talking. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, right? So we find out that Jesus isn't going the way his brothers suggested. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now remember, Jews and crowd are different terms here. So when it says the Jews were looking for him, we're talking Jewish authorities. So when they say this, where is he? What's the implication? We want to kill him, right? Where is he? There's a hostility sense to this question here. It's not just a genuine desire to find out where Jesus is located. Then we go to the crowd, verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the crowd seems somewhat undecided, right? They can't, some 
lean one way, some lean the other. But what they all can agree on is we're not going to talk about this in the open because we don't want the leaders to hear us talking about it. We're too afraid of them. But then we find Jesus stands up and begins teaching. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Notice, what did Jesus do? He taught. He didn't start doing miracles and signs and works like his brothers suggested. Right? Because Jesus knows, as much as we know from what we've read so far in the Gospel of John, is... True belief comes by making known the truth, not simply by seeing a miracle. But the Jews, those leaders, are surprised even by this. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're basically asking the question, who taught him this? How does he know any of this? He hasn't been raised in our schools There's no way that this guy should know all of this stuff. And now Jesus gets to really dig into that question. And we see really it's the same problem that they had with him before. Remember back when he healed the paralytic, what was the problem? They said this man's making himself in relationship or equal to the father. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus brings up the father again. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus claims that what he is saying, what he's teaching, we don't know necessarily what he was teaching at the temple. It doesn't really give us much description of what it was. It just says he he began to teach. But he says it's not based on him alone, but it's based on the one who sent him. Clearly, we know who he's talking about. And I think the Jewish leaders have some sense of this too. But if this claim wasn't enough of the one who sent him, Jesus makes it even more clear in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Well, Jesus just made it quite clear for them who he's talking about of who sent him. He's saying God the Father himself is the one who sent him, and he's the one who's teaching God's teaching. But he noticed what he says here, if anyone's will is to do God's will. Right? So now there's a distinction of the only ones that can tell the difference between whether Jesus is speaking on his own authority or on God's authority are those who truly desire God's will. So it raises this question for the Jewish leaders that he's talking to. He's asking them, in a sense. He's not, he didn't actually ask this, but he's, in a sense, it brings up the question to them and says, do you truly desire God's will? Because it's only those who truly desire that will be able to tell whether I'm speaking on my own authority or whether I'm speaking on God's authority. Of course, the Jewish leaders would say, yeah, We do. We're the ones who are teaching everybody else on what it looks like to desire God's will. But Jesus' implication here is maybe you don't. Maybe you don't desire God's will. In fact, they think exactly the case of what Jesus is arguing here. They think Jesus is wrong because Jesus is saying, if you desire God's will, you would know I'm speaking on God's behalf. 
not my own authority. And the Jewish leaders would look at Jesus and say, you are speaking on your own authority. You're not speaking on behalf of the Father. In fact, this is what ends up ultimately because of Jesus' death. Right? They think he's a blasphemer. And then Jesus explains it even further to them in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So there's two types of glory. There's glory for yourself that you get from the approval of man, or there's God's glory. And Jesus says here, if he is seeking God's glory, then he is true. What he's saying is truth, and there is no falsehood. This has massive implications, if you really think about it. Because if Jesus is seeking God's glory, which he is, then every word that Jesus says is true, which it is. And in Jesus there is no falsehood, and there's not. Thus, when the Jewish leaders say Jesus is wrong, they're not seeking God's glory anymore. And they never were to begin with, right? But it's making a clear statement, a clear distinction here, that if the Jewish leaders tell Jesus he is wrong, then they're not on the same side as him, and he says he's seeking God's glory. So that means if they call him wrong, they're seeking their own glory instead. And that's exactly what we see here is this clear distinction between man's glory and God's glory. With man's glory, the person speaks on their own authority, they desire their own will, and they seek their own glory. But with God's glory, you speak his truth, you desire his will, and you seek his glory. You know, there's been a debate go on in the last few decades, I guess, on, you think of little kids playing in sports and the whole idea of participation trophies, right? There's the whole argument there I've heard many times before, right? And the whole point is, we get both sides of it, right? We understand what, what both sides are saying. Now, you might disagree with how the other side goes about it or whatever but here's the whole point right is we're trying to people are trying to give recognition to everyone right to give everyone some sort of encouragement or approval right and then you have other sides that disagree with that and say well when someone lacks in their achievement there shouldn't be no recognition or glory or approval in having a lack of achievements but Church, I want to not necessarily talk about the argument of that, but I want to take it a step higher, in a sense, and think about this. Who deserves glory when you compare yourself with God? In a sense, what we're doing is we're settling for participation trophies when we seek man's glory, when really there's only one glory that truly deserves to be sought. God's glory. In comparison to him, not a single one of us deserves any recognition. None whatsoever. 
No man should seek his own glory because nobody deserves it. Only God is worthy. And Jesus sets up the perfect example for this. And Jesus is the one who never sinned. So imagine how much more us as sinners. If Jesus, the Son of God, seeks God's glory, the Father's glory, how much more do all of us as sinners need to seek God's glory? Jesus even is willing to seek God's glory to the point of obedience to death on a cross. But he does it so that you and I are now able to pursue God's glory. Until we come to Jesus, we never can pursue God's glory. So the call here is not only do we reject the glory for ourselves that comes from man, but we are to seek God's glory. And we see kind of three descriptions here from Jesus that I want to hit for a moment. We are to speak God's truth, God's word. We are to desire God's will. And we are to seek to make God known or seek his glory. So let's apply it to mothers here real quick for a second. Mothers, above all education that your children could possibly have whether it's math or science or Shakespeare or any other topic in life, your first and foremost foundational pursuit is for your kids to know the truth of who God is. The truth of God's word. And so it should be in your own life as a mother first and then instilled in your children as well. And from there, you not only make God's word known, God's truth known, but your desire is not what you want, but what God wants for yourself and for your kids. Now, mothers often get some sort of recognition on Mother's Day for doing a good job at this, right? That they are sacrificial of their own will for the sake of others, right? That motherhood is often one of the most or the most thankless job, Right? They often don't get any glory for any of their own desires because they never get to often pursue much of their own desires because they're too busy taking care of anybody else. But I also want to include here that there's a temptation for not just mothers, parents in general, for us to have our kids pursue what we desire our kids to pursue. But there's clear indication here There's meant to be a desire for God's will to be done in our kids' lives, not our will to be done in our kids' lives. And here's the reality. We know what God's will is for our own lives and for our children's lives. For God to be glorified. For him to be made known in our lives and their lives. For mothers... God's will is that they would represent God to their kids and to the world around them and seek for God's glory in their own kids' lives, not on earthly terms, but in spiritual terms. And Christians, we can pull out the same points of application, right? We're to seek God's word. We're supposed to know God's word for ourselves, and we're supposed to speak what God says. We're to align our will with God's will. Think about that. Ask yourself these two questions. What do you want in life? What do you want in life? And then ask your question, is it the same thing God wants in your life? 
do those two things match up with each other? The only way you know what God wants in your life is by what God says he wants in your life, which means you have to go to his word. So ask yourself, how much are my desires for my life lining up with what God desires for my life? And then last, we seek for God to get the glory in our own lives. We're not seeking our own glory. And church, I'm not talking about, when I talk about glory, we often can probably think much higher than what I'm actually talking about. I'm not just talking about celebrity glory. I'm talking about any sort of desire, even on a small scale, a desire for having people liking us or approving of us in any way. That's not what life is about. Life is about God being displayed, that God might be worshipped in our lives. So then we come to the last group. Jesus calls the crowd to be able to distinguish between these two types of glory He introduces Moses here in the conversation. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Right, The law for the Jewish people at this point in time was their means of pursuing God's glory. They thought, but really what they had turned it into was man's approval because they had written some of their own laws and kind of created their own structure of it. And Jesus uses their own law against them, right? Because their own law says what? You shall not murder. And Jesus says, yet you're seeking to kill me. You're even breaking your own law. But the crowd denies that. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They said, you're mad. You're insane. Nobody's trying to kill you. Although we already heard that the crowd is afraid to talk about what they really think about Jesus. Might be some cover-up there for the leaders, but we'll not get into that. Jesus continues on for them. I did one work, verse 21. I did one work, and you all marvel at it, right? Here's the reference back to healing the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And when Jesus says you marveled at it, it's not necessarily a good thing. Remember, the leaders became upset with him. Right? Marvel is just this, this hint of like surprise or shock, right? We tend to think of Marvel as like this awe, this reverence side of the thing. But it's not necessarily that. They marveled at it, they were surprised by it, but it didn't drive them to faith. So it wasn't necessarily a good marvel. But then he connects his healing to Moses. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So Jesus now goes to circumcision, which isn't even Moses. Remember, God gave it to Abraham before the law was ever even introduced. He says, but you attribute it to Moses as part of your law. And you're so consumed with following that way that you would actually circumcise a man on the Sabbath to make sure that God is glorified, in a sense, right? To make sure that the law isn't broken. You're willing to go through to those lengths to make sure the law isn't broken, to make sure God is getting the glory according to your law. And yet I make a man's whole body well on the same day. And you become angry at me. Why can't Jesus heal a man if they can circumcise a man? Jesus asks the question, in a sense, 
Can't my healing a man glorify God just like you circumcising a man does? In fact, I would say, Jesus, I would say that me healing a man's whole body is better than the circumcision. What's really at odds here is the people are saying, we need Jesus to have our approval. That's what, that's what the Jewish leaders essentially want. They want Jesus to desire their approval. Right? Much of following their law was about man's approval at this point in history at least. But this whole point, this whole conversation of Jesus talking here is saying Jesus overrides all of that. Jesus doesn't pursue man's glory. He rejects it. And makes it abundantly clear he's seeking God's glory, not theirs. And what's the worst of it? They got angry at him for seeking God's glory. The people who thought they were seeking God's glory got angry at the one who truly was seeking God's glory. So Jesus leaves them with these final words, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He says, don't judge by your external laws, your man's glory, but instead, judge with right judgments. Don't judge simply by what your leaders tell you is the right way, but instead, look at even their own use of the law. For Jesus to heal a whole body on the Sabbath isn't breaking the Sabbath. He calls for the discernment between what is man's glory versus what is God's glory. Right? And we think of, he talks about the word judgment three times in this one verse, right? Judge, judge, judgment. Three times he mentions it. We think of a judge, right? The judge has a law, right? Where you decide, guilty, innocent, right? You kind of have two clear directions. Now, I'm not saying it's always that easy necessarily, but I'm saying you have two directions to go. Jesus is saying the same thing here with God's glory. You have man's glory and you have God's glory. How do you tell the difference? What did Jesus say? His teaching is from God. So what Jesus says, what the Bible says, is how we tell the difference between what's God's glory and what's man's glory. Now, like I said, for a judge, that's not necessarily always an easy thing of guilty, innocent. And for us, it's not always an easy thing, right? We might be able to say, yes, I know what the right thing to do is according to the Bible, but guess what comes into play? The human heart. Because the reality is, we constantly have to discern our hearts and what glory we're pursuing, even if we're doing the right thing. The Jewish people looked like they were doing the right thing. So we have to ask the question, whose approval am I seeking in what I am doing? Your entire Christian life will be one of discerning your heart's pursuit of God's glory. Because in reality, you can serve in the church for your own glory and not for God's glory. You can give money to the poor for your own glory and not for God's glory. You can even share the gospel with somebody for your own glory and not for God's glory. So your entire life must constantly be one. From now till you die, it's constantly discerning your heart on whether you're pursuing God's glory or your own. 
So mothers, this is a constant question to put before yourself and your children. Take grades as an example. You have a desire for your child to do well in school, which is not necessarily a bad desire. But why? Is it because the world tells you that it's good for your kid to go to college? Is it because it's your standard that they have to live up to certain grades? Is it because your child has put all of their hopes based on this academic way of life? Or, I'm saying all of those are pursuits of man's glory, or is it in pursuit of God's glory because Scripture tells your child to do all things with excellence? In pursuit of honoring and glorifying God, our children are to do things with excellent effort. All of us are. Because here's the reality. Your child can seek God's glory in the fullest sense, in all their effort, pursue it with excellence, and get a C. And we should not be disappointed if that happens. And you can apply this across the board. Your child can never play sports and seek God's glory. You believe that? Your child could never go to college and still seek God's glory. Your child may never have a high number in their bank account and still seek God's glory. And the same thing for Christians. We should always be asking ourselves this question. Whether we're a mother, a child, or just a Christian, am I seeking the approval of men or am I seeking the glory of God? Stop asking if it looks good on the surface level. That's judging by external appearances. But ask, according to God's word, is this God's desire for this situation? How is God made known and glorified in this situation? So brothers and sisters, I'll end with this question. Whose glory are you seeking today? Whose glory do you seek after? I want to leave you with this final verse out of Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. They're incompatible with each other. You can't seek man's glory and God's glory. You can't please man and please Christ. It's one or the other. They don't go together. So let me urge you today to know the difference. Come to God's word to recognize the difference and then reject that which isn't God's. Don't buy into the world's glory. And as you reject that, chase God's glory. Set your eyes on Jesus and don't turn away. And it's only in making him known in pursuing God's glory that you will find yourself actually living life as it was meant to be lived. Let's pray.